This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at Dr-History.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Here he is, the one, the only, and we're blessed for that, Dr. History. Thank you, Zeb. I may not look good, but I can dress good, right? Is there a truth to the rumor that you're going to be racing a car in the bump and rub car race at Oakland? <laughs> uh, you might look at my vehicle and wonder, but no. <laughs> no, not going to do it. <laughs> okay. I've wanted to do that. Yeah. I really have. Well, while we're talking about Oakley, let me just tell you, I ran into a member of the Oakley Vigilantes last week. And did they arrest you? They didn't. But I told, this is a younger guy, and I said, you know, when I was growing up, they used to have a Pony Express race yeah. from the middle of Burley to Oakley, 20 miles. Uh-huh. And I think they used a horse for, I think, four miles each. And okay. then they would do just like the Pony Express. They'd take the Mojica and throw it on the next horse and yeah. on. And uh, then they got to where they just did it up to Oakley around that big uh, yep. mile. I mean, anyway, I says, you know, you need to get that going again. That was a fun deal that pony express race yeah and when i started in the rodeo business back in 1970 that was a big deal up at oakland yeah yeah Yeah. i'd love to see him get that going again but would you enter it you know i I, there was a pause there (laughs) you know if i had the horses i i would love to do it i really really would yeah yep i would so they'd probably leave me right in the middle of main street though well the horse would make it but i wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) i'm not going to say too much it's grueling Oh, yeah, sure. It's grueling, absolutely yeah, grueling. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, you know, a while back I talked about steamboats, and we're going to talk about this time the title of it is Steamers on the Big Muddy. Mississippi. Meaning, yeah, yeah, yep, and Missouri. You've been there, haven't you? I have, yeah. yeah. That's uh, it's kind of an awesome river to see. When I was a senior in high school, my two best buddies and I were going to take, during Easter break, a canoe from the Portage area right there in Wisconsin all the way down to the Mississippi. Oh, wow. And we were going to go to uh, Mardi Gras at yeah. Los, in uh, New Orleans. Uh, our parents had a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're here today, Zach. Yes. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, April 1877, there's a guy by the name of Reverend James F. Walker, and he at that time was just about nine years old, just a young boy. He boarded the steamboat called the Penina at the thriving Missouri River port of Bismarck, of course, North Dakota, and his destination was Fort Bertrold, uh, where his father was to be employed by the government. Now, Fort Bertrold is farther west 
Uh, That's in Colorado, isn't it? No, no, it's still in uh, North Dakota. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, but it's just uh, uh, farther up the river, basically. I see. But the river, said Walker, was a boiling, swirling, eddying current, eddying current of animated mud. Can you say that fast five <laughs> I times? I cannot. And still stay on the radio? I cannot. Okay. <laughs> it was muddy. <laughs> so, anyway, shortly after leaving Bismarck, the paddle wheeler became stuck on a sandbar and had to be what they call grasshoppered off with two huge spars, which were as much a part of the equipment of a steamboat on the upper Missouri as boilers. So the, this grasshoppering is just kind of, it's like they kind of lift it up, move it, lift it up, move it, and to get it off the sandbar. I see. Well, that night after the boat pulled into shore and the passengers had retired, a fire broke out in the ship's laundry room. It was extinguished by the crew. The next day, the Penina pushed into shore to replenish her fuel supply of cordwood. Of course, they all had to have wood for the steams yeah. uh, at a wood station. And while they were st- stopped there getting wood, part of the bank gave way of the river and with a tremendous roar and little, literally pinned the ship to the spot. Well, the Panina was dug out and the voyage, voyage continued on. So here's just one example of the things that happened. Did anybody ever get the idea that maybe this ship was doomed? <laughs> well, we'll keep going. I figured we would. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so the Panina encountered uh, uh, on its routine trip just a few of the hundreds of hazards facing the, the daring breed of rivermen who piloted steamboats on the Missouri. And what is now North Dakota actually plays a pretty important vital role in the story of steamboating on the river. Really? There was a guy by the name of Pierre Verandier, and he became one of the first white men to record a visit to the Missouri's banks when he visited a Mandan village in 1738. So we're talking way back. Yeah. Well, you were there in 17, what, 39? 39, yeah, right after. So he found the Indians using dugout canoes and bull boats. And for those who don't know, a bull boat is basically like a bowl uh, covered with uh, hide to keep the water out. It's just like a big round bowl. Really? A bull boat, yeah. So that was their river transportation. So they didn't know if they were sitting fore or aft. Or aft. No, they were sitting in the middle. But uh, that was their river transportation. But it was not until after Lewis and Clark's expedition in 1804, 1805, that the white man began any extensive river traffic. So it was the need for faster transportation, which could haul more goods at less cost, that brought the Missouri paddle wheeler. So as the fur trade grew, troops were established along the river, and these troops had to be supplied. Well, there weren't any railroads in that area of Missouri, so the steamer had the job. That was was his job. I didn't know the river was that deep. Well, let me tell you how, how these steamers, how they worked, uh, and this may help you understand that. But in 1832, the first steamer reached Fort Union, which is three miles above the mouth of the Yellowstone River. And it was the American Fur Company's uh, steamer called the Yellowstone. And in 1833, two steamers made the Upper Missouri Voyage, and basically this kicked off the Missouri River traffic. Uh, for lots and lots of boats. So July 17, 1859, the first steamer arrived at Fort Benton as close as most steamers could get uh, to Missouri's headwaters. That's as far as they could go. Where were the headwaters? Right up, uh, really on uh, the western end of North Dakota, over into where the Yellowstone River uh, comes in, uh, over towards Montana and into Montana in that direction. But 
Anyway, in relatively few years, there would be as many as 50 steamers docking at Fort Benton, uh, just as in a few more years, the upper river traffic would be, for all practical purposes, a thing of the past. I mean, it was oh. one of those things that was big, big, and then it kind of faded out. Really? But, for example, docking at Fort Benton in 1867 were 10,000 passengers and 8,000 tons of freight. And this at a remote spot in Montana. So, you know, it went into Montana. And at that point in Montana, they were 3,560 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. They were 2,200 miles from the mouth of the Missouri. So we're talking, they really got into the heart of America, so to speak. Well, what big town sprung up from there? Well, you're looking at Helena and some of those, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the trip from St. Louis actually took two months to get there, two months. But two ke- months? keep in mind, they're going upriver, so it had to be slow going. Yeah. Now the trip from uh, uh, the return trip only took maybe two to four weeks. Of course, they were zipping down there with the current and uh, zipping, zipping. Yeah, that, zipping. that's a technical term. Yeah, technical. Term. Yes. So. Then it was the magic cry of gold that spurred this explosion. Its discovery in 1862 in the Montana region brought thousands to the gold fields and the Missouri. It was hazardous, but it was the safest route. How long did it take to get there on that boat, though? Well, like I said, from uh, it took two months if they left from St. Louis. St. Louis to the gold fields. Yeah, two months. Two months. Yeah. What did one do on a boat for two months? I suppose you sharpened your knife and it talked. It was to- very sharp. <laughs> it was sharp. But anyway, this Fort Benton became the rendezvous and outfitting point for the entire mining region, and all of its needs were supplied by steamboats. And from there, it was actually only 200 miles overland to the mines. So that was the quickest, the easiest way to get to the mines in Montana. No and then, off, of course, on into Idaho and Colorado, different places like that. Huh. But here, too, for a period of years, only the steamboat could supply the needs of the military. Keep that in mind. The military had to have uh, supplies. Yeah. So, uh, like I say, the typical Missouri River steamer designed to go as far up the river as possible while carrying as much cargo as possible. So, the famed boat called the Far West was built in 1870 to the specifications of a guy by the name of Captain Grant Marsh. And this is probably as good an example uh, as can be found of the ideal boat. Light strong and speedy okay now here's the what the far west looked like it was 190 feet long wow that's long with a 30 33 foot beam which is across yeah its draft was only four feet six inches when loaded to its capacity of 397 tons in other words it only needed four and a half feet of water to float you could have put that in murtaugh lake you could have I mean, that still amazes me that it only took four and a half. The displacement, really, I didn't know that. Yeah. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, when it was empty with nothing on it, it only needed 20 inches of water. You're kidding me. So, And it would hold how many tons? Well, uh, 397 tons when loaded. Wow. So uh, kind of an amazing uh, feat of engineering, I think. I would say it was yeah. 190 feet long yeah. and 33 feet, feet wide. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And powered by steam. Right. And, of course, it had probably three decks. You know, plus all the wow. all the cargo, yeah. but it had three boilers and two engines, each with a five foot piston stroke. So you know what I'm talking about the piston yeah. that goes up and down yep. in there, five feet. I mean, that's a pretty good size. Didn't want to get in the way. <laughs> no. Now it uh, it had a deck ha- or a pilot house up on top, and actually they would take metal boilerplate to kind of surround the pilot house because they didn't want bullets or arrows uh, hitting the captain of the ship. How many people were on the crew? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Really not sure. I, I think it depended on how much cargo they took as well, to how many people they could take. Well, you had to stoke fires all the time. Right. So they had to have a crew of, I, I don't know oh. for sure how many. But the steamers would leave their home ports of St. Louis or Sioux City or Bismarck, and depending on the progress of the railroads, because as soon as the ice was out in the spring and barring either unusual floods or periods of low water, they could make it up there until the river froze again. Okay, now what did they do for supplies when the river traffic was not available? It had to go overland. That took a long time. Oh, yeah, oh, that my. took a lot longer than the two months. Yeah. So, well, so in the short navigation period, the uh, the profits were very, very good. They they made a lot of money, and so many were attracted to river traffic, uh, despite the dangers. That there were about 450 steamboats that were wrecked on the Missouri. You're kidding. Me. 450 that were wrecked. So we don't know how many really there was total going up and down. What was the biggest problem with the steamboats? Well, was it blowing up? I, that yeah, that and snags and uh, yeah, just yeah, all kinds of things that could stop a, a steamboat. Oh. But in 1876, during the Custer campaign, yeah. the army chartered the ship, the Far West, for three hundred and fifty dollars a day, and it was during this campaign that this Captain Marsh made the historic rush with the survivors of the Custer battle, uh, full speed from where he took them on, fifteen miles from the battle scene. He's only fifteen miles away uh, to Fort Abraham Lincoln, south of Bismarck. So the guys that were left over from the Custer battlefield. and The there, ones that didn't engage right, the Indians. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they were taken, uh, you know, by this uh, steamer. Uh, Did the Indians and or other bad people with bad intentions really bother the river traffic quite a bit? You know, I, I don't think they would that much because you've got a boat out in the middle of the river and, uh, you know, how much really can you do but they had to stop at various locations and get more wood didn't they exactly yeah yeah and i don't know that they didn't stop at night even i you know because during the night you can't see where you're going but you know ironically although the coming of the northern pacific railway to bismarck in 1873 established that town as head of the missouri river transportation it was kind of the handwriting on the wall for the steamboats it was 
when the railroad got there, they didn't need the steamboats anymore. It was gone. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Bismarck boomed. It became the home port of, uh, for steamers supplying the army, miners, settlers with freight arriving on the train on the Northern Pacific. But in 1879, the Northern Pacific pushed westward, and in 1887, the Great Northern reached Helena, Montana, finally. And this pretty much was the death blow for the steamers. Okay, I got a question for you right there. You said there were over 400 that had wrecked? 450 that had wrecked. So we don't know how many so still survived. So how many doggone steamers were there? I, I'm going to guess at least twice that many. Oh, my. Just to, just so to what guess. do you do with a steamer with no water? <laughs> Turn it into a hotel. Oh. <laughs> So I don't know. But, you know, an era was ending, but it did not die overnight. Steamers still served a purpose along the river from Bismarck to a place called Williston until the railroads could extend a network of branch lines. So the railroad really was the death of the steamer for the most part. But by 1904, the gasoline engine in general had replaced the steam engines. They didn't need the steam anymore. On the, and there were still a few boats, but they went to gasoline-powered instead of steam. And the government pulled its snag boats off the river. And I'll, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, about what they call a snag boat. Yeah. But the government pulled these snag boats off the river. And uh, it wasn't until 1936 that the Benton Packing Company gave up the last uh, the river steamboat was gone on the upper Missouri. What did they do with those old steamboats? You know, I think for the most part, they just uh, salvaged them. You know, took what they could, the wood, yeah. But, you know, the age of the steamboat introduced kind of an era of uh, speed into the American consciousness. Suddenly, travel time was not dependent on river current or straining horses. Instead, it all rested on the power of the boiling steam engine. Mm -hmm. And those who would stoke it higher and higher and then close the safety valves to ensure the fastest travel time... Not surprisingly, steamboat captains became known as terrible daredevils, and they raced each other for the titles. Who would own the route from New Orleans to St. Louis or from Natchez to Louisville? Well, in a time before government inspections and regulations, the public excitement at steamboat races was full of danger. How fast could they go? You know, I have no idea, because obviously, if they're going racing upstream, not very fast, downstream, yeah, they could move along pretty good. So might even be able to pull a water skier. I don't know. That fast? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they had water skiers back then, did they? I don't know. <laughs> well, like I say, it was full of danger for the captains, the crews, the passengers. And still, that danger did not keep people from laying bets on the winner, and nor from turning out in droves to watch these races begin and end. And uh, But now, there are parts of the Mississippi and parts of the Missouri that are not wide enough for two boats at the same time. That's exactly right. Uh, you're coming to that yeah oh in fact a passing uh, yeah a passenger aboard the racing steamboats the robert e lee and the natchez described a treacherous passage in the race now here's what he said he was a passenger and they were racing the robert e lee and the natchez okay here's what he said finally the channel apparently narrowed and the interval was closely closed rapidly up until with a bump the two boats collided heavily 
almost throwing me from my feet. The guards seemed to groan and tremble, but neither boat gave, and so the two rushed along with rubbing sides. I suddenly found myself standing face to face with a passenger on the other boat. No kidding. (laughs) And somewhat apparently to his surprise, extended my hand and wished him good morning. You shook hands? He shook my hand, remarking that he proposed to leave us, and so on the boats went. I'll be done. He continues, he says, I think we must have rushed along in this way for several minutes, but finally they shouldered us out of the channel and, giving a triumphant whistle, shot ahead and down the river, leaving us to follow. (laughs) So that's how close they were. Holy smokes. Now, what about the danger of having the uh, steam engine blow up, though? Huge, huge danger. Uh, And it would probably just blow the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't until 1852 that the government regulations began to be imposed on the steamboat boilers, which cut down on the dangers of racing. Uh, However, it was not only on racing ventures that the steamboat travelers were in peril. Steamboats were constructed mostly of wood. Okay, so they were basically a fire trap. If fire started with an exploding boiler, it could spread so quickly. It was like a fireball. I mean, you can imagine just boom, it explodes and... All hands in the water. Yeah. Wow. Uh, They would collide with each other or smaller boats. uh, An easily torn hull would sink a ship. Uh, Hulls were also battered by snags underwater that they couldn't see. Uh... There's a guy by the name of Henry Miller Shreve, and he attempted to clear the river with his, what he called, snag boats in the 20s and 30s. And he actually got rid of a lot of the danger uh, of these snags. And I don't know exactly how he did that, but somehow he had uh, these snag boats that would pull out these buried uh, trees that would snag steamboats. No kidding. So that, that helped some, but... You know, most dangerous, uh, though poorly maintained boilers, uh, rushing captains and inattentive crews that did not release steam from the boilers caused a lot of violent explosions. Uh, After an explosion on the steamboat called the Moselle in 1838, a committee of inquiry blamed the, the haste of the captain in leaving the dock and commented bitterly on the American mindset that had developed but there were shooting, uh, overriding of the safety valves, running into other boats. Uh, they had steamboat races where sometimes the crews on each ship would start shooting at the other guy. Shooting guns? Shooting guns at the other. Oh, that's the a, other. Kind of like NASCAR. I guess, you know. But the great steamboat race actually is in an annual event taking place the Wednesday before the first Saturday of May, three days before the Kentucky Derby. Are you kidding? Still going on? Yeah. And as part of the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby Festival, the race was first run in 1963, and it takes place on the Ohio River in the span that runs between Louisville, Kentucky, and Jeffersonville, Indiana. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Now, until 2009, the race was traditionally between the Belle of Louisville and the Delta Queen, although other steamboats have participated. And uh, since 2009, the Delta Queen has been retired, and the Belle of Cincinnati has taken its place in the competition. In 2012, the Belle of Louisville and Belle of Cincinnati were joined in the race by one uh, called the American Queen. Holy so these steamboat races. Uh, and I. I'm out of time, but I've got to ask you this quickly. Have you ever been on a steamboat? I have not been on one. Would you want to after knowing you know, all this? Well, I would now. Ooh, I don't know. 
But I've seen them, and I, you know, I've been over there by the Mississippi and seen the boats going up and down. I, you know, they do tours. They, weren't you know, some of the uh, boats on the Old Snake River in history, weren't there a lot of steam boats there? That, there was a little bit, but mostly it was miners, the, the mining dredges. I see. A lot of the islands in the river right now are because of the dredges. Didn't they have a steamboat blow up in a story that you used to talk about it by Lewiston someplace? Uh, yeah. I, you, you I, well, there was on. one that tried to go up the snake through Hell's Canyon. That was it. That was it. And not successful. No, it wasn't. No. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.